Actually, I don't remember being born. It must have happened during one of my blackouts. Doors lead singer, Jim Morrison. History Podcast, where we set the historical record straight, no matter who it might offend. I'm Paul. Today we're going to do something a little bit different. I know I've said that on a few recent episodes, but we're going to keep doing something different today, in that I'm going to be doing a book review that covers a period of history that a lot of people today think they remember if they were alive during that time, or know absolutely nothing about if they weren't, and that's the 1960s, specifically the period of the late 1960s to the very first part of the 1970s, and the book that I'm going to be talking about is actually my favorite music-related biography. It's called No One Here Gets Out Alive, the biography of Jim Morrison, lead singer of The Doors. So let's get started. It's pretty well known that the books, films, and music that can impact you the most are the ones you encounter at the earliest age. Just like me hearing Born to Run for the first time at nine years old changed me forever, so did reading No One Here Gets Out Alive during Christmas break in my freshman year of high school. Now what possessed my mother, who at the time mainly listened to country and western legends like Charlie Pride and Charlie Rich, to buy me a book about the most notorious member of the 27 Club right before I turned 15 remains a mystery. I had discovered The Doors on the album rock radio stations that I listened to growing up in the 1970s and blasted songs like Light My Fire and L.A. Woman in my room, so maybe that inspired the gift. I still like to think she secretly liked them too, but regardless, having heard the music, it was time to learn about the man. And what I quickly learned from reading No One Here Gets Out Alive was that for all the talk about a superior education that I was receiving from Catholic school, I had heard about almost none of the authors, painters, and philosophers that were influencing Jim Morrison by the time he was a teenager. Reading the book sent me on a quest to read people like Nietzsche, Kerouac, Rimbaud, Huxley, and Camus. And what I learned from that was that Jim Morrison was a genius, totally insane, or both. Because except for Kerouac, I understood none of it. It was, however, impressive that whether he really understood them either, he could take their ideas and turn them into amazing songs. I also learned in reading the book, there are some parts about 60s history that the Catholic Church did not want its kids to know. Now, the first 50 pages or so cover Morrison's life up to his college years, and the family dynamic does explain some of his later work especially the fact that his father was a naval commander. But it's when he sees future Doors keyboardist Ray Manzarek on Venice Beach share some lyrics he wrote, and they decide to form a band that the thing really gets moving. That's because while this is a biography of Morrison from age 21 to his death at age 27, his life and the life of the Doors, and a lot of the life of the 60s, are so intertwined that they just can't be separated. The Doors, perhaps more than any other rock band ever, were a unified whole. Though Morrison wrote nearly all the lyrics to the songs, 
he insisted that they be credited to all the band's members. On every Doors album, you'll see the same six words, words and music by the Doors. Morrison took this unity so seriously that when a radio DJ introduced them at a concert as Jim Morrison and the Doors, he refused to go on stage until the man went back out and reintroduced them as simply the Doors. I should say there is one notable exception to Morrison writing all the lyrics. Their most famous song is Light My Fire, and that was written by Robbie Krieger, the very first song that the guitarist ever wrote. Because of that unity that I mentioned, the real story of Jim Morrison's family is found not in the early pages of the book about his parents and siblings, but in the chronicle of his time with Ray, Robbie, and drummer John Densmore. And like any family, the four of them battled at times, both creatively and over Jim's excessive use of drugs and alcohol. It flared up most often between Morrison and Densmore, whose personalities were the most different. John looked for answers in transcendental meditation, while Jim embraced the broader spectrum of peyote, acid, and booze. The book also deals with Morrison's relationship with longtime girlfriend Pamela Corson and their many infidelities. And for me, these sections bog down the narrative somewhat. Far better are the stories of the creation of the music itself. After all, the music was what it was all about, and what music it was. Beginning with their self-titled debut album in 1967, and continuing through 1971's L.A. Woman, the music on the six albums they released defined the late 1960s in all its experimentation, discovery, and excess. Morrison himself represented these things as much as anyone who ever took to a stage. He became, as he had always hoped, a modern-day shaman. He also enraged nearly every authoritarian figure of the 1960s and had multiple serious run-ins with the law, usually during concerts, as hard as that is to believe now. In 1971, burned out from the drugs and alcohol and facing serious legal issues in Florida, he fled to Paris to write poetry and be just Jim. I get that. From an early age, I had idolized the lost generation expat authors like Hemingway and Fitzgerald, who called Paris home in the 1920s, So I understood then, and understand now, the allure that Paris had for him. Now you may be wondering what any of this has to do with history or with revisionist history. Well, as far as history, I didn't want to get into a whole lot of it now, but in that book, intertwined throughout the narrative about Morrison's life and the doors themselves, is the history of the 1960s, something that with 50 years past, we don't really know as much as we should because history repeats itself. As to the myth part, the final part of the book is where the authors veer into the realm of conspiracy theories and fan fantasy. They take a few questionable details surrounding Morrison's death, which was ruled a heart attack by a French doctor, and run with the crazy story believed by many fans from the moment Jim's death was announced that Morrison didn't actually die on July 3rd, 1971. And I'll admit that when reading this in 1980, only nine years after the fact, part of me wanted it to be true. Also in keeping with the myth theme of this podcast, I said earlier that it's the first biography of Morrison following his death, but in reality, it's as much hagiography as biography. 
Just like St. Bonaventure writing about the life of St. Francis of Assisi in the 13th century, authors Hopkins and Sugarman are codifying the myths as much as reporting the facts of Morrison's life. The biographical details, and there are many, are a means to an end, not the end itself. If you're looking for straight facts, then one of the more recent books about Morrison is going to be much more appropriate for you. For me, both at 14 and now, this type of hagiography in this particular case works just fine. Because as much as I love debunking myths, there are times that we need myths in order to survive. And we can't just keep the old ones. We need new ones too. And there's no better candidate for a modern day myth than Mr. Mojo Rising. Check out No One Here Gets Out Alive and help keep that myth going. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to today's episode. I hope you found it both informative and entertaining. If you'd like to help us keep episodes like this coming, please consider clicking on the support this podcast link in the show notes. Thanks a lot.